0: Hello, my name is Arturo. Welcome to Global Life Podcast. With this platform, we hope to discuss global issues and occurrences, but also highlight positive activities and research being done globally, especially within less developed countries to combat those issues. We hope that you all may listen, provide feedback, and hopefully engage with us, and also please share. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Global Life Life episode three. This one episode is very special because this is the first episode where we have actual guests and we have two of them. Count one, two guests in addition to us, uh, Umar and I. Um, So for this episode, before before I introduce our guests, uh, we're basically going to talk about Yemen. Uh, Originally, we had planned to talk about the entire Middle East in general, but uh, Umar and I felt that that requires like a series of episodes on their own. So we just decided to cover uh, one of them at a time. So we're really starting with Yemen right now. And um, so let me introduce my guests. I'll let them introduce themselves because, you know, I want them to just, you know, hype themselves up, you know. (laughs) Um, So my first guest, I'll introduce the first one, um, Matthew Delgado. Uh, Do you want to introduce yourself, man?
1: Yeah, thank you, Arturo. Uh, My name is Matthew. I am currently doing my master's in global conflicts and security at George Mason. I plan to graduate in December, and I have interest in film um more more so in like docu-series like netflix docu-series i think that the ability to capture an audience through film is something that is very important because uh you can transcend language you can have subtitles i mean sometimes uh you don't even have to know the language to really know what's going on your eyes just see it and you you know you know the truth so i think it's um something like very important to me and something I hope to do in the future and combine it with my major. Thank you. All right.
0: See, yeah, I like that a lot. Um, And then our next guest is uh, Juan Hirón Blanco. You want to introduce yourself, man?
2: Yes, uh, my name is Juan. I'm a I'm currently an undergrad at Mason and I'm studying economics with a minor in international security and finance. I was previously a government and international politics major as well, so I have my feet in government a lot and in foreign issues. Um, personally, with regards to my interests, I'm really about finance and markets, understanding how that relates to worldwide um, connections and just coalitions and interactions amongst nations. and really focusing on international security, ensuring stability through finance and stuff like that. And I really appreciate the film stuff, Matthew, really big things. I agree. Film is super important and you can really just communicate and, you know, transition a lot of ideas and show so many emotions and ideas through through film. Very important.
1: Oh, thank you, Juan. I um yeah. I actually w- was thinking about doing some stuff with what your interests are. I wanted to, uh, Look at small arms, um, like the trade of small arms, and how that affects war and stuff uh, for my college, for my graduate thesis. So
2: exciting, big things.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's really impressive. And just a little funny fact too: uh, Matt was actually my uh, mentor for this organization on campus, uh, Mason, called the Aguilas. And so he was my mentor, and so basically, a lot of the things that I know or that I like are because of Matt. So, you know, I, I love having him, man. It's really and with Juan, too. He was also my mentor for a different work, but that's another story. Um, but just to like, I guess, I, I felt like maybe Umar and I didn't introduce ourselves like maybe the most properly. So I'll just like introduce myself again and like basically how um, Matt and Juan did. So my name is Arturo Bajera. I am a conflict analysis and resolution major at George Mason with a concentration in political and social action. And a minor, or I'm planning a minor in sustainability studies, and some of my interests really gear from the environment, climate change, to racial issues, especially attached to the Latin American community. Um, really, those are where uh, those are the topics that I'm really interested in. But uh, you know, I'm not afraid to talk about um, things that are going on internationally either. Um, it's something that you know I'm still trying to learn about. You know, so when we discuss Yemen, I might not be the most perfect, but you know, uh, something that you know we're all going to learn from. And yeah, give Umar the chance to introduce himself a little bit and we can get started.
3: Yeah, I'm Umar Rahman. I go to Temple University. I'm a health profession major at the uh, College of Public Health. I'm trying to become a, uh, going to med school and, uh, you know, become a doctor, hopefully, you know, helping internationally too. A lot of my uh, interests are in traveling to a bunch of different countries. I've been to like more than 35 countries and, uh, you know, if I can just, you know, Uh, become a doctor and help out internationally with the poor countries i know we're going to be talking about yemen which is one of the you know most malnutritious countries in the world so it's going to be a really fun topic yeah definitely
0: um so to get started i guess um to our guests how to i guess summarize yemen do one of you want to kind of give a idea of like what the situation is in yemen how the whole conflict started Do one of you want to kind of jump on that? I have a little summary here, but I want to kind of give you all a chance to maybe express some opinions or how you see uh, the conflict starting.
2: Did you want to go first, Matthew? I don't know how you wanted to do it. Matthew's a grad student. I feel like I should... Oh, you got it. You got it. (laughs) Okay, so I'll start it off and kick it off. So a lot of the stuff that resonates with regards to the Civil War, of how, like, where we are with regards to Yemen, dates back to the Arab Spring. So I'm sure, like, that's what happened. That's, like, what's listed in your summary. And so in the rise of the Arab Spring, a lot of uh, peoples within the Muslim world, within the Middle East, you know, are trying to, you know, put away, overthrow these authoritarian regimes and, you know, get more freedoms that they see that they have access for, that they're experiencing around the world and around their region, seeing that it's successful. So one of the things that happens in Yemen is a transition of power, a transition of power that is led, I believe, from President Saleh in 2014. He's removed from power. Saudi Arabia um, orchestrates that and installs his vice president into power. And during the transition, there's a lot of, you know, separatist groups. Yemen has never really been united per se. There's always been a lot of widespread Groups and so one of the one of the groups during the transition of power was the Houthis. They took advantage of the vacuum of power and the transition to the VP, who they saw as pretty weak. And then so they installed themselves, and thus that kicked off a lot of the fighting that we see today. The fighting really began a lot more deadlier when they took over the capital in 2014, and the, pres- the vice president at the time fled to Sa- um, Saudi Arabia. Once that happened, Saudi Arabia began to involve themselves a lot more into Yemen and established a coalition to really thwart the Houthi advance and thwart the rising power of the Houthis that, and really curtail Iranian influence that they saw was growing as a result of the Houthi power base growing. But it's not just them. There's also, you know, there's the Yemenese government that's fighting the Houthis, you know, a lot of terrorist organizations such as ISIL and al-Qaeda have taken advantage of the chaos. You know, all of them and the United Arab Emirates are, are also have back forces there that are also trying to take advantage of the chaos to really carve out their own regions. And, you know, with so much chaos going on and a lot of, you know, because it's such a distant country and it doesn't really get a lot of headline in the news, you know, it's just fallen into disarray more and more, just as Syria has and other countries in the Middle East and, that has resulted into the crisis that we see now. I don't know if I did a good job or
0: not. No, you, did. <laughs> okay. you did great. Matt, do you, you want to um, jump off of that?
1: Sure. Um, I'll come from the perspective of where we are. I guess as like the U.S., we are uh, supporting Saudi Arabia in, in the bombings of like Houthi strongholds. I think uh, the number of drone bombings we have like conducted right now is in the hundreds. Um, so that has created a lot of displacement and numbering in the millions. Um, and on top of that, there was a cholera outbreak recently, followed by a coronavirus outbreak. And this is made no better by, like, the mass number of starving, like, uh, there's, there's a large number of starvation, like, food isn't coming in um, to, to southern Yemen. Um, so you're seeing what is the world's worst humanitarian crisis at the moment. Uh, And then you also see, like, a proxy war, as Juan mentioned. You have Saudi Arabia supporting the the past um, Yemeni government, and then you have Iran backing the Houthis uh, because of their orientation as Shiites. So it's it's, it's a big mess.
0: Yeah, definitely. And um, especially with the um, coronavirus, unfortunately, it's, like you said, really has um worsen the situation uh, humanitarian from a humanitarian perspective um and you know i was going over some facts too and um apparently there's 41 ngo programs that are in yemen right now and there's a risk of that they may lose more than 30 of those programs as a result of low funding and i'm also hearing that um aid coming to the country well, the the amount of aid is being decreased because apparently the aid is not even getting to the uh, Yemeni civilians. It's going to other places. And so that's why aid is like uh, really decreasing from the U.S. even. Um, So yeah, it's uh, a really, it's definitely sad. And it's kind of like Juan mentioned, it's a complex web of like things. And I feel like in the Middle East, that's what's um, going on in general. Um, I guess this is like an actual question I had for like all three of you really. For the Houthi, like what what exactly are their motives like it doesn't it hasn't really i guess been clear to me i've read a bunch of different things but what would y'all say from your perspectives i know juan you were looking from a more realist perspective what are the motives for the, yes. the houthi um, group
2: so the houthis are a Shiite muslim minority in the country and so because they and you know you have to ask matthew stated there's a lot of a proxy wars and powers and a lot of interest going on. So the Houthis have been a group that have really been disenfranchised over time. And you have to understand that Yemen, the the President Saleh, I believe, I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, has been in power since the 90s. And he has fought, him and his government have fought, fought on and off wars with the Houthis and keeping them at bay. And they've been over time so, so disenfranchised From any power or representation or anything going on like that, and they've lived under this authoritarian regime, and there's just the constant disenfranchisement, and seeing that in states like Egypt and Libya, they have been able to topple their governments and been able to orchestrate some type of change has kind of, I guess, motivated them to really take advantage of, you know, the elements and everything going on to really just get and receive more of this franchisement, more voice in the government. Obviously it hasn't happened, you know, this it's just unlocked a Pandora's box of so many interests and proxy wars as was stated before, you know, the the Iranians are backing the Houthis, you know, trying to curtail any Saudi advancement or power base growing within the region. And the Saudis have been able with their wealth to amass another round of Sunni coalition forces that have just been like hammering the Houthis with whatever they can give them. And so really, it's more about I guess the, the constant disenfranchisement, you got to think about it. If you've been disenfranchised for since, for about 30 years now, you know, or well, really like 20 years, you know, and even further going back into history, you know, there's a certain point of you're trying to take power for yourselves and really like lead you. And, you know, Yemen has never been a unified force and they've had autonomous, you know, type regions because it's just so hard to, you know, unify and for the government to really keep constant control, you know. And so that's just really caused, you know, the Houthis are like, you know, we're done. We're, we're trying to take more power. And, you know, they're in the minority again. You know, they're not like in the majority of where, you know, they're at the seat of the table of power. And, you know, if they've been they've been so oppressed for so long, you can't deny like why they have, you know, maintained the fight for such a long time.
0: Yeah, definitely. And. You know, you spoke on Saudi Arabia a little bit. And I know Umar kind of expressed, I guess, um, I guess not strong feelings, I guess, for both Saudi Arabia and the U.S. Uh, Umar, do you want to kind of, um, I guess, explain that a little bit?
3: Yeah. So earlier I was talking to you earlier about this conversation about like uh, when we were doing some research on this and I was just talking about how, you know, Saudi and the U.S. as well, like helping them, you know, giving uh, all those uh, weapons like Matthews uh, talked about earlier. Have been like really pushing for Yemen to not be its own like thing with the Houthis and whatever, but you know to have some hand in Yemen, you know, like have a control in Yemen. I I just feel like that's leading to more, you know, anger by the Houthis and everyone else because the Houthis initially came to power because you know everyone was tired of you know being mistreated and everything, and then afterwards the Saudis came in with the U.S.'s help, and I think there's more countries too not just U.S., but, you know, they came in and, like, essentially wanted to take power from the Houthis. Houthis. So, yeah, I just think it's causing more uh, violence than help. Yeah, I definitely
0: I definitely do see that. You know, I was doing the research as well, and it seems like a lot of countries have their hands in Yemen. Um, I mean, I even read France was involved, uh, the UAE was involved. Um, just like a lot of at least to me it seems like the fight not even about like I guess the Houthis it's like just it's just expanded to levels that you know maybe weren't even necessary Um, so I guess like the big question at least for me like and I would want to maybe direct this to Matthew um, you know is it too late to kind of um, end everything do you think that there's still a possibility that we can arrive at some kind of accord or to make both the Houthis and um, Saudi Arabia per se um, feel satisfied.
1: I, I believe there is, and what you really have to understand is Yemen is very tribal uh, in the way that the gun earns you respect. Uh, there is a tale. There's a the book I read, Narrative, uh, Monk of Mocha. It's about this man, uh, uh, Mokhtar Al Kanshali, and he he's a coffee connoisseur. But he went to he went back to his home of Yemen to gather coffee beans. And the reason is that Yemen actually produces the best quality coffee beans in the world. Um, and so while he was there, he had to earn the respect of the farmers and go into different provinces to get beans of different varieties. And he carried uh, he carried a gun at all times. And this was just the way it was. Everyone carried weapons. Um, and they it was a way of showing I guess masculinity of respect Um, and so I think the way that's going to happen is the government will have to understand the respect that the Houthis want over time because they've been neglected. Uh, A lot of these communities are very poor that he went to um, and, and he saw the poverty going around like like what's happening right now there's a lot of malnutrition and neglects that have actually began before even the civil war started so I think a lot of those issues have to be addressed um, by any Yemeni government coming to power for the Houthis to stop what they're doing. Uh, a similar like thing I, I guess I can compare it to is the FARC in Colombia, where the initial reason that the FARC started was because of land reform. They weren't given land. And when um, they, they had an outing with the government and they, a lot of farmers were killed back like in the fifties. And so, when they were finally granted the land, they came to a peace agreement and they de- demilitarized because they finally achieved what their aim was. And so I think once the Houthis achieved their aim of autonomy, uh, that then you'll see like the, the bettering of uh, Yemen.
0: It's something I actually have not thought, like, why not just let the Houthis, you know, get what they want, you know? Um, I don't know. Do you, do you agree with that one? Do you? Uh, do you, do you see it from that perspective or do you, kind of um,
2: I see it a little differently. I, I think I, I'd say that I'm a little reluctant to say that it's possible. I mean, I think it certainly is, but I think there, it's much more than just giving the Houthis autonomy at this point. I think the it's just grown so much out of that. Like, you know, they, the, the U S and the Saudis suspect that Iranian, the, Shiite power in the region that the Iranians are helping the Houthis. And you know, they've always been it's the Middle East has been characterized as a type of cold war between the Saudis and the Iranians. And so, you know, the Saudis are just a few miles away from where where the Houthis control like the region. And so they the I think there's no there's not going to be any peace that doesn't involve greater powers such as Iran the Saudis, the central, you know, the government that's fighting in the South and the Houthis. And like, you know, as we discussed before, it's not just simply giving the Houthis, I think, autonomy because there's so many more groups that are involved. You know, you take care of the Houthi problem. You still have to take care of the Arab Emirate groups that are backed in, you know, Yemen. You still have to take care of Al-Qaeda and ISIL that are still, you know, that have taken advantage, taken territory that are still, you know, oppressing other people, you still they still have to focus on that. And I think I'm reluctant to say that there will be a type of peace because I don't think the Saudis will allow it. I don't think the Saudis will accept any type of Houthi autonomy because they'll see then one of the main reasons why they've declared that they're like, you know, bombing and you know maintaining this grand coalition is because they're trying to curtail Iranian influence that's right below them. That's right in the southern you know it it's right in the south and i don't think that they'll there'll be any chance of the saudis accepting and stopping and cutting off aid to support the southern forces the south the government of the south and supporting the bombings that they're doing on the houthi rebels like i just don't see anything where the saudis will give and it's going to be i feel like it's going to be a war of attrition essentially where the where they'll just bear down the Houthis until they are no more, and that's when the Saudis will be okay. And it's unfortunate because, you know, they are, like, you know, Umar has stated, the Saudis are getting help from the US, the UK, France, and logistical help. Like, all the weapons that the Saudis have, none of them that they've made, all of them have been bought by the US. And the thing is, if we don't support them, someone else will, right? If we don't sell the weapons to the Saudis, the Saudis will just look to the Russians or to the Chinese to buy weapons so you know it's at a certain point you know what can you do you know i think logistical help giving to the saudi's proxy war in yemen i think is wrong i think it should be stopped but i feel like if we do help you know if we stop it at a certain point it's going to damage our relationship with the saudi's and it seems like in the region the saudi's are our only partners you know that, that remain and you know what it looks like in terms of stopping the violence i don't I just don't know. I don't see that there's any, you know, right way that it can be done because there's just so many interests involved. And I think the Saudis just won't give what what the world wants. You know, all of us want the, you know, the humanitarian crisis that's going on to stop. And I think the Saudis see it and they just, they don't care. They're like, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to allow Iranian influence on the southern tip. We're just not going to let it. And I think that that's sad. I think at a certain point, you know, you got to let them be. But that's what I think, personally.
0: Yeah, and I think that's interesting, too. And I guess from what I've heard, I guess what you implied, I guess, so if, because I know the U.S. has kind of talked about pulling out of relations from Saudi Arabia, but do you think that will, like, I mean, I think you kind of already mentioned it, but do you think that will really change anything? Because you said, you know, the U.S., if, we, if we're not supplying, let's say, right, if we're not supplying weapons to the Saudis, then the Saudis will just go to the Russians. Um, so do you really, do you think, like, I guess the U.S., whether we pull out or not, it won't really make a difference?
2: I think I think it will make a difference. I think it, you know, if we pull out, you know, if we end the logistical help, I feel like France and the UK will follow behind. I feel like they they just don't have that much invested in Yemen. I mean, maybe they do, but I think you know, once we leave, what what is there to maintain help? And I think the Saudis will 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 just use the money that they have because they they just you know they've they they have so much wealth they'll just turn to someone else. And you know, like I said, I think you know. Trump sees it and, you know, if Biden comes in, like, you know, you don't want to hurt the relationship that you have with the Saudis, because once again, they're like really one of our only, you know, quote unquote friends in the region. It's difficult to find people who are willing to side themselves with us, despite everything that we have done in the the Middle East. You know, we're not gonna get any friends out of Iran, we're not gonna get, you know, any friends out of Iraq. Iraq is, you know, destabilized even, you know, after we have basically left, you know. And so what I don't I I just don't see it because, you know, the Russians are entrenched in Syria and they and they'll just take the opportunity. If we leave, they'll take the opportunity to help with that. You know, Putin is not oblivious to wanting to make Russia the power that it once was. And I just don't see it see us withdrawing help, helping the situation. I feel like it'll just be more prolonged just because Putin will see an opportunity and he'll take it. You know, he'll take it. you know, that's he's taking the opportunity and he's taking the opportunity in Syria and helping prop up Assad. He'll take the opportunity to help with the Saudis and that just doesn't work to our benefit, unfortunately. So I, and you know, if we cut off logistical help, like they'll, we'll still sell them arms, you know, so what what really what really will that do? You know how much will that hurt them in their campaign? I don't see it very much because if they're still getting the bombs to bomb the poor civilians, the Houthi civilians, you know, it's still creating even a greater humanitarian crisis. I don't see anywhere you know that really comes out to the benefit of the Yemeni people who are suffering. You know, it's not just the, the soldiers who are dying; it's more the people and the civilians who are you know taking the brunt of everything.
0: I know Matt, you wanted to add something too. I, I, I think I saw you shaking your head.
1: No, I, I, I'm in total agreement, um, actually. So, I actually wrote a paper uh, recently about whether, uh, like, the U.S. pulling out a lot of pulling out of a lot of European security agreements, um, such as the Intermediate uh, Nuclear Treaty. Um, we're gonna we may pull out of what is called New Start, which limits uh, the number of nuclear arms we have with Russia. And the the trend is that Russia pulls out when the U.S. pulls out. And so there are a lot less agreements that Russia is being stopped by to become that, um, to become the alternative if the U.S. decides to leave. Um, And actually, because we pulled out of the treaty and Russia pulled out of the treaty, we're allowed to create and like disseminate more weapons, uh, whether they be nuclear conventional. So the only way I could see an alternative uh, where Russia does not come in, if the U.S. pulls out, uh, both its help and somehow its arms would be if there was a conflict along the Baltic Sea um, with Eastern European countries, with NATO. But then again, you still have China, like Quan mentioned. So there is going to be another supplier whether or not we are uh, deciding to support or not support Saudi Arabia.
0: What do you all, and this is for all three of you, I guess. I've kind of read on this a little bit, but I want to hear, I guess, like perspectives. I know the UN or the United Nations has been trying their best, I guess, to mitigate all the violence. Um, but apparently their, as, their credibility as a mediator is really being undermined because of the Stockholm agreement. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that. Um, but do you, I guess, do you do you see the UN? I mean, I know Juan basically already said like um, that it'd be really difficult, but do you see the UN at least making some kind of dent into, I guess, solving things? And this for all three of you, if you, anyone want to jump in.
1: So under um, NATO law, there's something called Article 5. And Article 5 allows members of NATO to go with a military mission, practically start a war without the permission of the UN. Um, And that is if they feel that the safety of their country or of their interests is is in peril. So under Article 5, they could override whatever the UN is doing and just go in, unfortunately. Um, They get written up, I guess, uh, for violating uh, UN law, but... In the end of the day, if that if international law does not match their domestic law, they're not going to face repercussions for their actions abroad.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think I've read about that a little bit, too. Um, and gosh, I you know, something else I wanted to say. Oh, yeah, with Saudi Arabia, too. I mean, they've apparently already committed war crimes um, and already broken a couple, I think, laws, I, I believe, just from, I guess, shooting their missiles towards Yemen, killing a lot of people, and apparently, the, the, but they haven't been... I guess re, uh, what's the word, repercussed for that, and so um, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I don't know if y'all I don't know if y'all want to add anything else. I know Sweden also was involved in, and um, hosting peace talks. I don't know if y'all want to discuss that a little bit
2: okay, I'll take a stab at it. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't see the, the UN is just so weak right now. Like, we're, nobody, poor, poor United Nations. Nobody respects them anymore. Nobody, they've just, you know, nobody's like going through the UN to like, seek peace. And, you know, I mean, it's been tried with Syria and it's failed. And, you know, I I don't see the UN just helping out. I, I think, you know, I like, you know, I think, Matthew points out, you know, maybe a military, you know, backed Western coalition maybe help out, but you know, you can I expect like Europeans to put up, you know, their men to stop the fighting, and you know, the Europeans have already, already, are already upset and you know, frustrated with the Syrian crisis. You know, no help, no peace, no, you know, being able to get there, I, I don't see them say, okay, let's put up, you know, the men, the weapons, everything to stop the violence in Yemen you know, because the Saudis will just say no, you know, and their trading power that they have in the region, they'll just curtail anything, any advancements, you know, that happens. And it's, it's sad, you know, and I think more humanitarian help should be given, you know, but with the coronavirus, you know, how, how likely are domestic governments okay with, you know, sending aid out instead of, you know, trying to save the folks that they have now, you know, because everything is so distorted, you know, like what well, like, how are we going to expect, you know, you know, American citizens, to, taxpayers to say, okay, let's put up some money to go stop a war far away, you know, and hasn't worked out in Iraq, hasn't worked out in Syria, hasn't worked out in Libya, but this one is going to work out fine. I just don't see anybody saying that that's, you know, that, it, that it'll work out. And I just don't see how any coalition going in, you know, whether NATO, UN, any power that be really to like set up and autonomy because we just don't we just don't do a great job of you know nation building we didn't do a good job in libya we didn't do a good job in iraq and even if we you know get the support what have you i don't think we'll do a good job in yemen and i hate to say that we might even leave it more broken than it is if we go in you know unfortunately
3: yeah i don't think the UN's going to do anything until like after the fact which at that point, it might be too late. And even if they do anything then, because right now they're just not, you know, sadly not powerful enough to stop any of this. But like, maybe if like once all of a sudden, who knows how long that'll take, then they can like serve some sort of punishment for the war crimes or something. But even that, I doubt it at this point.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I do, yeah, I do agree with that, I think in part. I think it's just yeah, it's like a web. Like we're already too deep into this web to the fact where it's going to be hard to, I guess, really untangle. Um, and I guess discussing like the aid to, you know, there's accusations that the aid is not getting to the Yemeni civilians that it's being taken by the Houthis or the other parties involved. How? I guess I want what I want to ask is like, is there a set way to send aid? Is there should there be more evaluation into the NGO programs that are in charge of? giving aid to the Yemeni civilians um, because apparently just the aid is not getting there. So I don't know how y'all feel about whether, if there's a way to make sure that aid gets to the, the people who need it.
2: Okay. Yeah. I think,
0: yeah.
3: go ahead.
2: Oh, go you ahead. Go, no, you yeah. go, Umur, you go.
3: Yeah, I've right. talked
2: too much. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, no. Um, no, I think it's definitely difficult because as of right now, even like the new hospitals that are being built in Yemen and the new schools, they're being blown up sadly so it's definitely a tough task to do and even the money being sent there everyone's in danger there so i don't know if there's exactly a perfect solution to stop that unless the violence stops or at least unless the violence gets targeted specifically towards specific areas but right now just like you're in danger wherever you are in yemen so it's really tough to change anything over there
1: i think the best way to to send aid but not exactly aid would be to support businesses in the u.s that do not trade but like have um Yemeni products or services in the supply line because if you know if you support them then workers in yemen are getting paid and then they can get resources or um the resources can be sent to them to help them like survive um and that's not really through an ngo channel but just like being conscious of like businesses um that have to do with Yemen,
2: yeah, I would agree, I think the best way to like help is really to empower the you know products then you empower the people then you, you know they have a wage because one of the greater things that kicked off the malnutrition was the really the cut off of the supplies, the cholera outbreak was kicked off by months of months of the men who are in charge of the disposal of trash just not getting paid you know they i believe they weren't paid for eight months when the cholera stuff kicked off and all the trash was in the streets the rain season came in washed all all the bacteria and stuff into the drinking water and built up just the perfect conditions for cholera unfortunately and you know i i just don't see and both sides have been at fault the houthis and the government have both been at fault in weaponizing, destroying, blocking. The Saudis even worse at ensuring that no type of aid goes in by sea, by land, by water, you know, so it's just like, it's so hard. And I think what Matthew says is, right, I think, you know, the probably the best way at this point is to just empower, you know, be conscious of where you get things. But, you know, it's difficult if the Saudis are blockading any type of humanitarian aid, who knows how much they're going to be blocking anything getting out either, so but it's really sad I think but I think that would probably be the best way to support any type of empowerment you know you give people wealth or money you know that they can spend curtail some type of malnutrition
0: Mm, yeah definitely and I guess for the last question because this is a 40-minute podcast don't want
1: to go oh before you say that oh yeah go ahead there's a, a a company if you guys are into like bougie expensive coffee called Port of Mocha and it is a a a coffee brand that gets its seeds from uh, Yemen and actually uh, from Yemeni farmers producing it like in a certain way and it creates the highest quality coffee bean in the world. So I know that money goes directly to workers. Uh, He mentions it in his book, Monk of Mocha, that work in the factory and then eventually to the farmers. Um, So if you guys want to help out, go to support that business and buy some coffee. (laughs)
0: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I was going to mention this too um, on my on our Instagram Global Life Podcast. You can look us up Global Life Podcast. Uh, we're going to put a link um, to kind of to donate to the um, to the children that are suffering in Yemen, and we will also put a link to a, a what's it called Matt's uh, Porto Matt's Mocha. business yeah. Porto Mocha, exactly. Yes, and we will also put that up there. Uh, and I guess to kind of close things off, just a, I think I think we could all agree on this: is the media in the United States doing enough to cover Yemen right now? I guess I could firstly say I don't think so whatsoever. And in part, I do kind of understand because the coronavirus is going on. We have, I mean, the highest death rate in the world right now. And it's it, it keeps on increasing by the millions like every couple of days. So I would I guess I understand it in part. But yes, I think the U.S. is not really doing enough media wise on, on coverage on Yemen. I don't know how you all feel about that or I don't know.
3: Yeah, I definitely don't think they're doing enough. And to what you were saying about this, uh, the media being focused on coronavirus, this Yemen crisis has been going on for before the uh, coronavirus crisis. So even back then, like they didn't do honestly anything. I had to, everything I did, I had to like find on different websites that had nothing to do with America, like CNN, nothing like that. So I definitely don't think they're doing enough. Yeah, I
2: agree with him. A lot of my stuff that I found on Yemen was really the BBC and like Al Jazeera that have been like, because they, you know, it's just more, you know, I think we just haven't been involved or the media just really doesn't care because of, you know, I guess Syria is just a bigger priority, you know, our domestic issues have just really like blown through the roof. So and like these foreign policy, like you know, outbreaks, these small conflicts around the world just get left behind because it's not just Yemen. Like, you know, it wasn't just Syria. It was always Yemen. Yemen has been going on since 2014. And it's six years down the line and nothing has been done, you know. And it's also, you know, how much of a priority is it for the U.S. to really do anything? And unfortunately, I don't think that we have the will or the motivation to do anything. And the media won't, you know, talk about it. So then it doesn't inspire anyone to, like, Really care, and it's unfortunate because there are a lot of Yemeni immigrants, you know, in the in the area in the U.S. and you know their families abroad are you know dying from nutrition, you know, war. It's really sad.
1: When we when we talk about the U.S. media, we have to remember that like channels like um, Fox or like CNBC, they're not government-owned, per se, but they're privately owned. So as the Pentagon, is the White House talking enough about Yemen? No. Um, But if we look at what is coming out of, like, more entertainment venues that we have, um, like, for example, if you have a TikTok algorithm for Yemen, you're going to receive a lot of information about it. Um, If you are, like, subscribed to certain, like, podcasts or things on Netflix or whatever, you're going to learn like a lot more information so the accessibility information has become a lot of easier uh, not because of like the government per se but because of like the ease with which private organizations have been given to like send that information to the public for like now lower rates um and and at faster speeds um so that's all i gotta say all right well
0: I definitely don't want to go too long i think we have like a limited amount of time on soundcloud for like total videos that we could post because then we got to start paying monthly so support your favorite pod- <laughs> support your favorite podcasters all right um and yeah if y'all want to hear any more about <laughs> if y'all want to hear any more about yemen um but definitely um let us know we could do a part two and we can have other guests on the uh on another episode um and yeah subscribe to us um we're definitely you know we're definitely trying to bring these issues to light and like i mentioned before we're going to put some links for uh, y'all to donate uh to yemen to the cause and yeah if, if any of y'all have any final thoughts uh, we can close it out right now all right no final thoughts <laughs> all right yeah, <laughs> no,
1: go ahead I, I think it's very important that you brought light to to yemen especially in this time because we are we're facing the coronavirus everywhere in the world. And it's easy to neglect um, like places in the world that already are taking on a lot of issues and seeing the impact there. So it's important to keep those places in mind. And, you know, once things get better here, we got to realize that not everywhere in the world are things getting better. And we have to like get back on track on being that global leader that we are as like the United States
0: yeah absolutely and you know i you know i really appreciate that too i mean it's a big it's like definitely hard i guess to cover issues like these but you know sorry our name is global life so we you know we try our best over and I, huh but um yeah that is our episode thank you so thank y'all so much for listening and thank you all for the support too i know i had a couple people really uh going in on us like really helping us out so i appreciate that and yeah that's global life and we'll talk to you on the uh, next episode next episode